Everybody just wanted to let you know that during uh, the recording of this podcast, we had some audio issues. So there's a break in the middle of it. You'll hear a TOS combat twinkle. Um, and I'm just mentioning this because it sounds like I either edited the audio or I edited out uh, Clay's response to something or I wanted to change the subject. It wasn't really the case, just an audio glitch and we had to restart the recording. So that's about it. Thanks. Accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints, just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We're continuing our DS9 coverage. We're running through all the episodes of DS9. We just made it to episode 20 of season 1. It's called In the Hands of the Prophets, and it's also the season finale for Deep Space Nine. There's only 19 real episodes, uh, if you count the pilot as two episode or one episode instead of two. Anyway, this one was directed by David Livingston, written by Robert Hewitt Wolf, aired back on June 20th, 1993. Uh, in this episode, friction escalates when Bajoran cleric Vedic Wynn arrives on the station and finds Keiko O'Brien teaching Bajoran children that their gods are wormhole aliens. That's kind of an odd description from Wikipedia, but that's what it is. Anyway, we're joined by Clay. Clay, how are you? I'm good. As far as I'm concerned, there's only been one real episode of Deep Space Nine so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, does that tip your hand towards this episode, or is that just not counting this episode and going forward? No, no. This one was fine. This, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll um, we'll take a little break. We are going to play an audio clip. And then me and Claire are going to come down and uh, break down in the hands of the prophets. Sometimes I wonder if we'll ever find the common ground we need to bring Bajor into the Federation. Major, would you join us? We've been talking about an incident this morning at school. I heard. Vedic Wynn's been meeting with some of the Bajoran civilians about it. What do you know about her? She's from an Orthodox order. She has some support to become the next Kai. Probably not enough. The question is, how much support does she have on this station? She is mine. You can't possibly believe teaching the facts about the wormhole amounts to blasphemy. I think some revisions in the school curriculum might be appropriate. You teach a lot of Bajoran children. I'm not going to let a Bajoran spiritual leader dictate what can or can't be taught in my classroom. And maybe we need two schools on the station. One for the Bajoran children and another for the Federation. If we start separating Bajoran and Federation interests... A lot of Bajoran and Federation interests are separate, Commander. I've been telling you that all along. Nobody's saying that there can't be spiritual teaching on the station, Major. But can't it be in addition to what's taught in Mrs. O'Brien's classroom? But if she's teaching a fundamentally different philosophy... I'm not teaching any philosophy. What I'm trying to teach is pure science. Some might say pure science, taught without a spiritual context, is a philosophy, Mrs. O'Brien. Clay, I, I want to ask you something on a, uh, a personal level here. Yes. Have you ever reacted... To someone, the way O'Brien reacts to that store guy when he tells him he can't have a Jumja stick. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever lost control over something so, so minor? Apparently, what that was kind of a, um, it, it was kind of a weird scene to me. That scene, like, is the memory I think I have of watching this episode. Is how the the episode seems to not have a lot of time to really delve into the argument of O'Brien's escalation into getting angry in that scene. So mm -hmm. he's just like, "Can I please have a a Jumja stick?" And the guy says, "No." And he goes, you motherfucker. And then he grabs him by the, uh, by the tunic and uh, is ready to punch him. I just, I thought it was a quick escalation on O'Brien's part. Yeah, fortunately, um, 
I've lived a fairly charmed life, so the only reason I think I've ever gotten that heated quickly is probably in my younger days debating, like, Star Wars or something stupid <laughs> like that. <clears throat> We're going to be talking about In the Hands of the Prophets. I told you, Clay, when we watched Emissary, the prophets are actually going to come back, and come back they did. Um, this episode... Well, like, clap back, am I right? Yeah, th- this episode is... Um, the original, the original idea that they wanted to do for a season one finale for DS9 was to have a cliffhanger because they, uh, the pr- producers and the, uh, the studios really love cliffhangers for series like these. After the success of Best of Both Worlds, they did it for TNG basically every season. It was a cliffhanger. Um, it was so good it had a Van Halen song written about it. The In the Hands of the Prophets was originally going to be uh, Picard and the Enterprise returned to the station. And they team up with Cisco and crew to defend against the Cardassian invasion of Bajor. Again, mm-hmm. that was supposed to be the original idea. They decided, Michael Pillow decided he didn't want to do that. And he wanted to bookend the season with a callback to Emissary to sort of bring back everything that Emissary had talked about and opened up with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that on a general point, I like this episode. I would like this episode. I th- I think this episode would be a whole lot better if any of the episodes in between Emissary and now had anything to do with any of the stuff that goes on in this episode. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the episode feels like it it takes a lot of liberties with what the audience is supposed to have understood of what's gone on through the first season of DS9 in a way that mm-hmm. they don't show you it, but they tell you that all this stuff has been happening over the course of time. And that's sort of my weak point of it. Although, if it was a season that was written better and actually involved some of the stuff that they were talking about in this episode, I think it's actually a pretty good season finale. Um, and as it stands by itself, it's pretty good on its own. Uh, but what did you think? Um, well, I... Uh, I lost my train of thought for a second. Um, yeah, no, I liked it. I, I Honestly, I'm, I was a little bit surprised this was the season finale. I'm I'm kind of coming at this in at a different point of view, I think, because I thought that uh I haven't watched anything else really of the season involving any uh any of this stuff. So it didn't really feel weird to me that it like it, there wasn't anything that they weren't following up on for me because I hadn't seen yep. anything else. So um it actually, I thought it actually played really easily and, and well as a standalone episode because they kind of, well, they start off with uh, um, the just in case you just in case you forgot about the wormhole. Here's five minutes of exposition about it. Yes, and I, you know, I kind of felt like that gave you everything you needed to know that opening scene. Like I didn't feel like the the few episodes I have seen, I knew the characters enough that when put in this situation, I completely was on. I understood it and wasn't lost at all. Um, I mean, I think that the I think that it does function as a standalone episode. So I think that it it works on both of those cases where I think you don't mm-hmm. really like they you don't need to know anything about what's gone on and nothing has really gone on in regards to this okay, stuff. Yeah. So it works on both both ways there. What I'm saying is just that it's kind of it's kind of hinting at the serialization that the show wants to do, but it didn't do any of it in the first season. Is that we have this? Oh, I see. Okay. They've just kind of jumped to the end and t- and fill in all the blanks about the uh, Bajoran stuff. But this is the all right. yeah, that makes sense. Like this is the very first episode that mentions the Bajoran political stuff that's going on, the religious, quasi-religious political implications that are going to be oh, happening. Okay. I guess I guess I kind of assumed some of that stuff had been brought up before. Right. Um, this is the first time we've ever met Win. Uh, Vedic Wynn or Vedic Burrell, 
So those are two new characters to this. Oh, okay. That that's that's surprising to me then because when uh, who's the woman? Vedic Vedic Win. When Vedic Win shows up, just walks into Keiko's class and starts like heckling her. Yeah. <laughs> um, I assumed from the way that she reacted that she knew who this person was. No. Yeah. That's it's a it's yeah. A that's totally really weird. Then. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, it's like imagine if you just like waltzed by an elementary school and walked into their science class unannounced and were like, "Hey, what about creationism, guy?" Yeah, we've we've met their we met their version of the Pope, who's called Kaiopaka, and she she was in things, but she is not this this uh, Vedic wind. So uh, basically, to break it down, the Bajorans are kind of being played off as uh, the Catholic Church in a lot of senses. Basically, the Pope, who's the Kai, and then the Vedics are the priests or the bishops, um, and. Vedic Wynn is being portrayed as the fundamentalist version, and Vedic Burrell is the more progressive, sort of almost populist, in a sense, uh, version of it. And so we haven't met Vedic Wynn. That's her first appearance where she walks into the the, uh, the school and starts lecturing Keiko about what she can teach and things like that. And this whole episode is about triggering the conflict between the secular federation and the Bajoran society. So this is the first time we've actually really been given insight into why the Bajorans would not want to join the Federation, which has been a running storyline in the background. Mm-hmm. And so they're taking a religious angle with it, which is interesting. And it's, you know, Cisco gets frustrated with them throughout the episode. And it's a it's a way that the Bajorans will be continued to be defined going forward and um, and stuff like that. But I think that the episode itself does a, a pretty decent job of setting all that up within the confines of what was set up in Emissary, like Cisco being called the... the uh, the emissary to the prophets and mm-hmm. things like that. He's in, in emissary. He never actually seemed to react to that. In this one, it's shown that he is uncomfortable with the position, obviously. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> that, um, that's a little bit more interesting to me then because yeah, they do kind of play it as though this is stuff that they've just been kind of has been out there for a while. So it's interesting to me that they haven't touched on any of this stuff really before but you seem um, you seem to think it worked in and of itself it no, didn't I did. need to, yeah huh? i think it did i think they told you the story very succinctly um or at least set it up for you very succinctly uh i think the as a whole you know uh, this is the kind of star trek story that i like where it's you know they're taking a um very real idea or uh clash of cultures or ideas and kind of put it through the sci-fi filter i think this i don't know do you feel it's a little on the nose i feel it's a little on the nose yes I mean. yeah. the, the scene where <laughs> the scene where keiko okira and cisco talk it out in cisco's office is is really on the nose about like yeah. you know it's a it's a caricature of every position you can have if this was a real life situation uh sort yeah. of yelling at each other i think that it's it's a little bit it's tough because it makes total sense in terms of the episode, but it's also, it's not sci-fi enough where it doesn't feel like they're just really talking about the sort of conflict between secular and religious values in like the real world kind right. of thing. Cause that is what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit on the nose, but why don't you continue with that? You thought it was just a little bit too, too heavy handed or was there a way to fix it? Or do you think it's just kind of the nature of the material? Yeah. I think when you're dealing with this stuff, it's, it's hard to do it subtly because um, it's going to what you're doing is going to come across pretty quickly. Um, 
I think it could have been worse. I think they could have been more heavy-handed. I'm really glad that it didn't focus on Kira and have her, like, have the focus of the episode be her having, like, an existential crisis about what side to choose or something like that. Yeah. Um, I was – I did not expect them to bomb a school. <laughs> sure. Uh, that, that was very surprising. Yeah. Um, I did like – I did like when Keiko and O'Brien tried to buy a gay wedding cake and they got shut down. Yep. That was, yep. and man, those are, was he going to eat that whole lollipop himself? Cause that is a, he, I mean, he shares it, offers it to his wife, but he implies that he eats those on the reg. Yeah. Uh, for and, breakfast. Uh, yeah. For yeah. That, <laughs> he, and like the way he describes it, it sounds like it's a giant piece of dried fruit. So he must be on like a sugar buzz all day. Well, he's he mentions a couple times during the episode that he's getting older. And I was thinking maybe it's just all the sugar that he's eating. is just slowly, yeah. slowly whittling him down to nothing. But yeah, apparently, apparently he likes the Jumja uh, stick or whatever it's called uh, and eats it quite frequently. I mean, I'm you said that you were glad that Kira wasn't the main focus. I'm also glad that they didn't make Keiko the main focus because that actress yeah. isn't really capable yeah. of carrying a story she's she's fine in small doses but the um the o'brien and keiko relationship at this point stuff the, the stuff feels like it's written by someone who's never been or is like parodying parodying what cinematic relationships are like in a sense like they <laughs> yeah. they don't talk to each other in any sort of real sense and in my opinion yeah she's she's which is probably for the best because she's not the best actress as no you said. she's not um she's a little bit flat in yep. that she doesn't have much range to anything she says. Um, I liked O'Brien. You know, I, I'm never going to not like O'Brien. Um, and you might I have, have uh, sorry, to tie into your um, being surprised that nothing had been mentioned, the the character of Neela, who turns out to be the assassin in this one, mm-hmm. she's sort of been implied to have been there for a while. They actually had a different actress in uh, since The Forsaken that was playing a character named something else it wasn't neela and she was supposed to be the assassin eventually so that actress had been in a couple episodes and it was a recurring face that you would have recognized and they brought in a new actress because they weren't happy with the old actress and so they just made it a a new character but she's never existed before this episode oh that's kind of that's unfortunate it is i think it would have it would have i think it would have been a lot more effective not that i mean it's it's not not effective but i think it would have had a little bit more weight if it had been an existing character yep i agree that's what their <clears> original <throat> intent was i guess the actress just didn't didn't manage to do do the, the job which is funny cuz she doesn't stick out in my mind as being particularly bad but they might have no. cut a lot of stuff uh, yeah, yeah yeah um yeah but uh o'brien was good um i have to ask does the mystery plot with odo becomes something they do frequently where he's solving a mystery yeah um he's always the one sort of figuring out what the underhandedness of something is going on like he he's always this sort of detective character who figures things out um just because I, I i say that just because you know uh, as they were doing it i was like oh yeah i like this i like that they have this character they can do this with but this was two episodes in a row that they've done it right and I wonder if it becomes a crutch where it's like because because this the the mystery pl- part of the plot just I don't know it felt it didn't really work for me that much like it was it seemed like it was just treading water to get to the end yeah I I, I don't even I don't even consider it a large part of the story in some ways it's it's really 
it's really tertiary and, and a lot of it's like Odo will be sent off to do something and the next thing you see is him coming back with an answer like they're not even interested yeah. in how he obtained the information he just he kind of figures it out and just it's part of the story that just is used to drive things forward but they're not really interested in it yeah and there's that scene where O'Brien brings him that that you know sensor chip or whatever and then he's just like oh this is probably what happened and then just like CSI's the whole thing yes yeah, which is yeah. you know whatever that's fine I mean it's, it's fun to have a Sherlock Holmesy type character every now and then but it's I I just I hope that they don't lean on this too much as a writing crutch no I don't think so but what did you think of the evolution because I thought there was we were complaining early in the season about how they were repeating the Quark and Odo situation mm-hmm. here they have a scene together Quark and Odo but I feel like they've manipulated it a little bit where they now have a clearer relationship to each other where Quark has information that Odo can get. So Quark is kind of a, an informant for Odo in a lot of ways. What did you think of that? Did you you notice that? Or did you think it was like an evolution of their interactions while still remaining true to the fact that those, those characters interact with each other pretty well? Uh, Sure. (laughs) I'm I'm only saying that because I, I I remember really liking those scenes in the earlier episodes. um, But I can't say that I've, I don't know how they've changed since then, but that being said, it was still a good scene, but it was different. It wasn't just Odo yelling at Quark. It, you know, it, right. it wasn't the high drama point of an otherwise dull episode. They actually, you know, they interacted as though they were normal people or normal characters that actually have a relationship. So I thought it was good. The um, I can't get out of my head though. Uh, Odo's like slight accent he has, plus that weird makeup. Yeah. All I see is Liam Neeson. <laughs> like when he turns to the profile, he looks like he looks like a bad drawing of Liam Neeson and his his accent, he's got like this slight Irish accent sometimes, so it's just I it it looks like Liam Neeson to me. Who is um who's the actor in Darkman? The movie. Liam Neeson. Is it okay, yeah, it is Liam I believe Neeson. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> so that would, he's kind of like a melted, yeah, like a melted Darkman version of uh of Liam Neeson Odo is. I I was thinking that you know, we'll we'll get into more of the the sort of topic what the episode was, but I, as the episode wrapped up, I thought that it was a good division between what I thought Discovery was going to be and what I thought DS Nine and Old Trek kind of was. So there's this assassination attempt on uh, Vedic Burrell, and he survives it. The 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 assassin misses. I thought that it th- this episode showed how it's of an older '90s era of Trek where that happened. I feel that. In a more modern series, Burrell is killed at the end of this episode, right? And that's the that's the or the, arguably he's killed earlier in the episode. Yeah, and and that's the thing that pushes us into the new season two sort of storyline. Like now, Win is going to be the Kai. She's corrupt. She's going to be put into this position, and it felt very much of an older style of Trek where he survives at the very end. He's, he's fine at the end and Cisco gets a chance to moralize about it and nothing really has changed so far. Everything is going to stay the same. Um, I guess you can't kill two highly politicized figures back to back in your show. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Eventually you start expecting it every, uh, every week. I was waiting for, uh, 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 what's the name? Burrell. 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 To, uh, to explain that he's not actually a Vedic and that he's, he's, had facial reconstruction surgery to look like him. <laughs> he is John Luc Picard undergoing yeah. <laughs> They had to get him in somehow. Yeah, I think that the um I, I guess we can just we can we talked about the nuts and bolts. We can talk about the sort of theme of the show here. Uh let me know what you think about this. Where I think that when people ask me 
if I think Star Trek is relevant or I hear people say that they like Star Trek because of the fact of like what the questions that it asks and the sort of like philosophical discussion, the ethical discussion, like they like that sort of procedural thing about like examining the human uh, experiments and all that stuff. I feel like In the Hands of the Prophets is an example of an episode that makes me always question that and people who say that because, well, the the plot of everything that goes on feels okay on the surface. I don't really know if it holds up or has any understanding of what it's talking about once you start to delve into the details of things. Like the the Federation's stance is that they're a secular organization going against this Bajoran uh, thing, which is more fundamentalist and sort of uh, driven by their belief system. Cisco has this whole thing about like, we never, we're not going to impose our beliefs on this other system. This is what this Federation stands for. And the episode itself and the writer seems to uh, imply that this is the case. Like the, it's better to not impose your values on other systems. The problem is Cisco does impose his beliefs on the other <laughs> system and he's right to do so. So while the episode is saying that all things are equal and like everyone seems everyone has a chance to be everyone should have a chance to do what they want to do. That's not really the way it works. And that, I don't think that's actually like a an ethical or proper way to go about living things because there are bad operators in the world. And I think that, that when it is a bad operator, she's not a horrible operator, although she does try to have people killed. She's a she's a, a bad actor in this and. Her belief system, or the way she's going about things doesn't deserve respect. Not that the belief doesn't deserve respect, but Cisco does have a stance against her on some level. So the the moralizing about everyone has a right to their opinion and we, we can't criticize any of these things that go on. Everyone's beliefs are different. They all make sense. doesn't really hold up once the episode kicks off, despite what the writer wants you to think. Well, that's sort of the problem with Star Trek in general, isn't it? It has the <clears throat> It has this undercurrent of this... Roddenberry ethos of everybody's equal, but when you really get down to it, they end up violating that pretty consistently, usually because it means a better story. Um, and uh, I think you're, I think you're right. I I think he's, um, yeah, she's definitely. His actions towards her are definitely warranted. She is a a, a bad actor in this situation, and. Um, uh, kind of lost my turn. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I'll read. <laughs> what, I'll read what the the writer says here. Uh, this is from Robert Hewitt Wolf, the writer of the episode. I have no argument with someone being a fundamental, having a fundamentalist belief in Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, or anything else. But I do have a serious objection to people trying to impose their values on other people. That's what this episode is about. No one has the right to force anyone to believe the things that they believe. That's one of the beautiful things about Roddenberry's vision of the infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And that was one of the things that we really wanted to hammer home here. Cisco does everything he can not to impose his values on the Bajorans, but Vedic Wynn is determined to impose her values on everyone else i would argue cisco is imposing his values on people like mm -hmm. if you if you believe that killing people is okay cisco saying you can't kill people is him imposing his values and while everything is kind of there's no natural order to any of this that you can fall back on we're really just making arguments about what's better for people to do and cisco's argument is better but therefore he is imposing his belief on vedic win at this point so you can't you can't tell me that that's the the moral of the story here because it's it's actually deeper than that and i think the episode actually exposes that despite what the writer says that he's trying to do through this all right so to sort of sum up um it's basically a it's a problem of 
tolerance, I guess. Someone had said that the uh, the political, the new political order was kind of a Jungian thing, or at least they thought of the way Carl Jung, the uh, uh, therapist or whatever, not a, not a philosopher. Why can't I think of a psychiatrist? Right? Was Jung a psychiatrist? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so. But the um, Jung, I guess, saw the sort of left and right divide as a extreme towards the right was an extreme towards authoritarianism and the left was an extreme towards tolerance. And mm -hmm. they both kind of have problematic outcomes. Um, I think people nowadays would argue that the, the left has its own version of authoritarianism, but it's kind of a different where the, the right is more about sort of people bowing to authority and sort of falling in line with a sort of more of a guiding principle of events. The left tends to go towards everyone's tolerance of everybody and equal tolerance is also equally, uh, a downfall uh, you can see that in sort of modern stuff with like isis uh islamic terrorism and everything you know there's sort of apologists who uh, apologize for the the belief system of islamic terror in a sense of saying like it's probably you know everyone's the same therefore it must be something that we've imposed on them on some level like it must be an external problem that causes them to think this way as opposed to a internal belief and that sort of tolerance of bad ideas a tolerance of an idea where killing people is a good thing is something that uh the star trek episode is kind of is kind of crashing up against even though i don't think it's that bad of an episode it's just i, I feel like it's a it's a an ethical thing that isn't really thinking about what it's talking about it's just kind of saying what feels right and i don't have a there's, it's it's tough to go against the moral of the story while it's also not possible to really for me to look at it and say there's a little bit of problematic thinking going on here. Yeah, you know, I think that stuff is there's always a wider net you need to consider when you know like the, that's the um <clears throat> problematic belief system of of a terrorist organization can't be viewed in a vacuum realistic like like if you wanted to if you're having an argument with someone i guess yeah you got to pick a side or whatever but it's like there's a lot of external forces that push in on that and then there's a lot of external forces that push in on those external forces so it's not it's never as easy as the kind of thing that they present in this episode but you know this is at least, at least they're presenting the idealized version of it, I guess. Yeah, I agree uh, with that. Uh, which is, you know, it's it's sort of a it's sort of a um, uh, an ethical negotiation to an extent where it's like, well, ideally you would present the most idealized version of something, and then hopefully where the person viewing it falls is still towards it, but probably not that far. Right. You know, it's you you present the most ex an extremer version of it, and then hope you know hopefully at least plants the seeds for thinking about it constructively and and coming to a, a positive conclusion. Yeah, yeah. In terms of um, in terms of a season finale, you uh, did you, you did you mention that you didn't really feel feel like it felt like a season finale, or you thought that it was kind of odd to you that it was a season finale? Yeah, I guess I don't really. Yeah, I mean, I guess it it makes sense that it it's a bookend to the stuff they bring up at the beginning. But it doesn't really feel to me like I don't know. It just doesn't feel like a season finale. It just I I guess because it's I fairly because, small. Yeah. yeah, it's small, and I guess because the um is it Pajoran or Bajoran? P or B? B B B. Because the Bajoran stuff is a constantly existing thing. It just feels like it's a, this is the day we're going to do a Bajoran story. Sure. 
not it doesn't feel like there's any larger you know implications to it i guess yeah at the, least not the, not not from my viewpoint anyway right the story is just sort of settling into what's normally going on on the uh the station in a lot of sense yeah i guess that's i guess it, it just didn't feel like it was anything other than like a tuesday on deep space nine yeah know? i mean to me it, it's sort of the, not that I guess. Sorry, I was just saying. Not that it necessarily has to. I don't really know. I guess. I guess it depends on what you're looking for out of a season finale. Yes. Yeah. I. I mean. I think that it's. It's definitely not a cliffhanger as they were trying not to do. I, I feel that it. You know, it ties into my point earlier. Just it. It feels like a season finale in the sense that they have kind of claimed that they've wrapped up some of these storylines. They. They haven't even really wrapped up storylines. They've just kind of bookended what happened in Emissary on some level. Right. Uh, on a character level. The Kira and Cisco relationship does feel like this is kind of a season-ending story for those two, where they've they've come to a sort of mutual understanding with each other about what's going on. Although, is there a, ever a relationship angle with those two? Because no. it seems like they're kind of into each other. No, it seems like it's building. No, they, those two never have a, a relationship. But and you know the the series itself is still not at a point where they're really embracing serialized storytelling. So there's no. Mm. I, maybe we're judging it unfairly by saying that it's wrapping up storylines when it's really never been trying to do that for the most of the season. It hasn't been about that on any level. Um, I think it's just a nice sort of, it, it calls back the episodes of Emissary in a way that duet is kind of like the, the, this episode is more uh, good and important just because it seems to now the show is remembering what its setup is for things. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's actually calling back to items that have happened and, the setup of emissary and how everything sort of pours into this storyline and going forward. And, uh, it's not making up bad TNG storylines that we have to go through. Um, you know, the, the mystery uh, subplot is kind of the TNG holdover here where you could argue where it's like, Oh, what happened to my tools? Oh, Odo will figure out what happened to this mm-hmm. person. Oh, it's with computer analysis shows that the person wasn't where they were supposed to be. That, that storyline is actually kind of confusing because you never meet the guy who died in the first place. So it's, right. it's all very detached from what's going on, and it feels very uh, off in the distance. But other than that, it, I think it's good. It does, but I think it improves on what I've seen so far in that the story they're telling feels like it belongs on this on in this setting. Yeah. Like, like you're saying, it doesn't feel like it's just an, a rehashed you know, TNG plot. It feel it's everything that happens involves people who are integrally involved with the story, except for Dash, because she's just kind of there. Is there <laughs> da- a name? Dash. Da- Dax. Dax. <laughs> you keep going. Dash. I, I think of like Sonic the Hedgehog for some reason for Dash. But yeah, yeah Dax. Do, do I do I do that a lot? Do I? <laughs> You've called her it twice to my memory, I think. Yeah, Dash. Sounds like a better character name choice to me. Though. I mean, no. she's the most forgettable character from this season so far. So, so yeah. does she, so larger picture here, does she stick around for the whole show? Um, she sticks around for six sevenths of it. Okay, because I feel like they made her character. They built in an eject button. Yes, to keep her character around, but get rid of the actress. And it uh, it's crazy to me that they never use it. Yeah, they they do use that. As, oh, they do. Okay. Yes, they do. Um, but I guess I, I guess I should say it's crazy to me they don't use it sooner. Because right. I mean, everything I've seen of her is just like blah. She's blah, but it's. I think it's also just the writing. I think her only scene in this is like a weird thing where O'Brien's in the foreground and he yells something to her in the background, and she just walks off and says like, I'll "Yeah, she, she has dialogue in this episode, but is never facing the camera when she says it." <laughs> right. Yeah, she's. I'll I'll do a wrap up video, and Dax will be a, a good portion of it. But yes, th- that is a character 
that is written into this character that it can happen and it does happen. Um, it's it's weird. It's like if it's like writing in the regeneration thing for Doctor Who and then being like, you know what, we're not going to use this for fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. I, I I still think it's a it's a, a weird weakness of the writing that no one seems to be able to write for this character because I feel there's a lot of potential with what she is and they don't they haven't really grabbed on the hold of anything uh, for some yeah. reason. Um, but yeah, the uh, this Vedic win and the Burrell thing is going to be a story that happens over the next three episodes. So it's uh, kind of a minor serial plot that goes on. Cool. Um, we'll be coming back to that in the second season. Um, I think we're pretty much done talking about the episode. Though. I would like to talk about the ending of this episode. Oh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Because I think <clears throat> three quarters of it is great or good. So what are you starting the, the ending at? What what point? Like the assassination sequence. Okay. That was the goofiest shit I've ever seen. It was very much a tombstone. No. <laughs> when he yeah. <laughs> and, like, and he jumps on her. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I always appreciate a good uh, uh, pushing through a crowd to try and shoot somebody sequence, like Collateral. Great, uh, great example there. Tom Cruise trying to push through a crowd at a club, trying to shoot this kid's great. Um, but man, she's a terrible shot. Yeah, she yeah. had like a clear she, like I she she misses him before Cisco Eve is like hits hits the arc of his jump. <laughs> But that he, that he whole thing he should have was a basketball so, in his hand. Like somebody needs to edit yeah. that scene with a basketball. Just him. That was like <laughs> that was should have been him like dunking from the from the free throw line <laughs> in Space Jam. Doesn't she? Um, doesn't her elbow get nudged? Doesn't her aim get nudged by oh, someone? Is that what had to somebody I, hit her? Okay, I, I, I don't think they better, hit her. I don't think they hit her intentionally. I think someone bumps into her and it knocks her aim off. Okay, yeah, yeah. that makes that makes more sense. But still, but still, that whole thing was so goofy. I didn't understand why she came down. She had a perfect sniper's nest view yeah from up on the like balcony. why didn't she just shoot him as he was walking under her right yeah it, it didn't make, <laughs> i guess i don't know if she was there's no real reason to wait for the because she tries to kill him when they're like having the scene of reconciliation like we will unite uh the vedic win and i will unite and show people the way and I, I don't know if that was part of the plot it doesn't make sense that she would need to wait for that to happen but yeah that's what that was my whole thing of just like shoot him shoot him when you're above like lee harvey oswald or something like that yeah um, back into the left. Yeah, I'm I'm mixed space. about I'm mixed about the ending as well. I mean, that's kind of goofy. The the shot of Cisco jumping on her is goofy as hell. Oh, um, so goofy. <laughs> and the um, Cisco's speech is okay, I think, but it it feels a little bit grandstandy um, to me at some yeah. points. It's a little bit too on the nose. And I I think that the final scene between Kira and Cisco is probably the best part of the whole ending. I think it's, it's a decent wrap up to those two. Yeah, I would agree because it gets you. You know, I, I said before that I'm glad that Kira wasn't the focus of the episode. But that being said, you're still thinking about her because they do involve her in the story and give her those aspects of you know having to deal with a culture versus uh, you know, uh, just a culture clash in general. So what's giving your, her. Oh, sorry. What's your uh, what's your sort of take on Kira? Like, how would you describe her sort of uh, as a as a character, like a personality, not just like she's grumpy, but like what 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 is her what is her placement in this sort of um, battle of ideas to you, having only seen her for a couple episodes? Uh, female wharf, female wharf. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is that yeah? I guess that's. I guess she is kind of the female wharf, but do do you think that she's? 
What's your sense of her faith in the Bajoran religion, I guess, would be my question. Because I don't know how many episodes you've seen of her where she deals with it outside of maybe mm-hmm. this one and something else. But like, what's your sense of her as it stands now? Because I'm not sure there is a sense, but I just want to know what you think. She seems like a, um, a lapsed Catholic, kind of. Yeah. Someone who, you know, grew up in the religion and still holds some of the beliefs, but maybe not as forefront as, as you know, some other people do. Yeah. There was a there was an episode called Battle Lines that I think did something really interesting where there was mm-hmm. she, she and the the Pope of the Bajoran religion get stuck on a planet together. And uh, it's kind of revealed that the Bajoran resistance, I don't know how much they go forward with this, but it was a great idea when they did the episode. The Bajoran uh, the Bajoran religion is largely peaceful is like the basis of their religion. It's very, you know, it's sort of Christianity uh, or Buddhist in that sense. Mm-hmm. And the freedom the occupation freedom fighters of which Kira was a part of are kind of seen as heretical by the Bajoran faith. Mm-hmm. So it's this conflict of doing the right thing to, to liberate her people is also causing her to be somewhat of an outsider to the Bajoran faith on yeah. some level. So there's that kind of a conflict going with her too. Yeah. And you know, I think, I think, I like that kind of character. I think it's an interesting character to have um, when you get into this stuff because <clears throat> it's so easy to write extreme points of view or polar opposite points of view. Let's put it that way, um, where you've got your uh, religious extremist on one end and Cisco on the other end, who's not an extremist. He's he's just a dispassionate to the extreme sort of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even Keiko, who's who's also not an extremist, but she's just a you know she's just she believes in science, which is fine. Yeah. Um. And and having Kira in the middle, I think even if it's only tangentially, I I think it's a good character to have because it's a realistic character to have because there are those people who, you know, who work certain jobs, who have drifted away from from whatever their religious upbringing is but then when pushed some of those things just click back in and they have to think about it right you know it's not an automatic you know it's not an automatic siding with with either one it's it actually causes them to think about their own opinions about stuff and that, i think those characters are really interesting because that's where you can build conflict from yep and she can actually wobble a bit you know she's a character that's yeah. set up to her ideology can wobble between cisco you'd have a harder time wobbling right like him seeing him uh sort of have non-starfleety opinions or you know a, a background or a system of belief that's not based in that sort of like this secular federation-y type stuff him wobbling is a big deal kira it makes more sense and you can understand stories that go both ways with her yeah definitely um but i think that's it we'll we'll play uh, take a break play an audio clip we'll come back read patron thoughts and wrap up uh in the hands of the prophets Neela insists she acted alone, unless you want to consider the prophets co-conspirators. She'll never tell us the truth. We'll never be able to prove that Wynne was involved. You okay? Okay. I've forgotten okay. I haven't seen okay in what seems like years. I was just sitting here thinking, last year at this time, I was fighting the Cardassians in some nameless swamp. And if you'd stop by and told me that just one year later, they'd be gone. I'd be wearing this uniform up here in charge of protecting some wormhole. 
protecting your celestial temple. I envied Vedic Gwen because she was a true believer. I wanted my faith to be as strong as hers. Maybe it is. I've got a report to put together for Starfleet. You ought to get some rest. I'd rather help you. Commander, I heard what you said to Vedic Gwen at the school. I just wanted you to know you were right what you said about the Bajorans. At least about me. I don't think that you're the devil. Maybe we have made some progress after all. All right, everybody. So if you support the show on patreon.com slash the Penske file, you can leave your thoughts about upcoming episodes and they get read on the podcast. We'll go through them right now, starting with Holly McLaughlin in the hands of the prophets, uh, the creation evolution debate. Raise your hand if you thought watching this in 1993, that by the time the series was 25 years old, this couldn't possibly still be relevant. No, nope, it's going to be relevant. I, uh, I don't know if we'll ever. It's, yeah, arguably more relevant now than it was then. Yeah, probably. I mean. It seems smaller back then in on some yeah. way. It was like more of a state level thing and now now it feels like it's boiling over into something else. Yeah, I, I feel like as I was thinking about it, I was trying to think back to I think at this point it was just a teaching creationism in school argument sort of thing. And it yeah. was not as big as they presented in this episode, but the way they presented in this episode feels kind of small at least more appropriate (laughs) if not toned down from the way that it actually is unfortunately yes yeah if just the the small scale of it makes it feel smaller on the uh, the station or anything yeah yeah but yeah i mean it's it's obviously a play on the creation evolution debate um just a sort of very a very generic take on that kind of stuff matthew ross writes every time i've seen in the hands of the prophets it makes always makes me ask why is nurse ratchet so mean I think Louise Fletcher played the role perfectly with the self-righteousness that pervades the character in the real world parallels to make neural, uh, neutral conversations sometimes really difficult. Is that who that is? Is Nurse Ratchet from yep. One Flew yep. Over Cuckoo's Nest? Oh, yeah, Louise, Louise Fletcher. Yeah, oh. So, and uh, she'll be back for a couple episodes, obviously. The First Order is nothing but Snoke and Mirrors. In the Hands of the Prophets is a rare episode that manages to get good mileage out of Keiko's sharp-edged personality. Obviously, we like her more than Wynn, but you can at least see how Wynn could turn people against her in Starfleet's know-it-all attitude. Burrell comes off the best, but unfortunately, he never quite lives up to his promise, though I continue to like him more than a lot of fans do. Um... Stephen Cobb says, in the hands of the prophets, as noted, there are echoes of the evolution creationist arguments, though I felt like it morphed into a commentary on fundamentalist terrorism with the whole religious leader manipulating the faith of their flock for their own purposes. It's interesting to see that Burrell was playing political games along with Wynn. On a lighter note, Odo's offhand, seek them yourself, was pretty priceless. I did like that line. Uh, it's it's after he separates O'Brien from the Jumja seller. He's, uh, the guy says to seek the prophets and notices to oh, seek yeah. them yourselves. Yeah. Uh, the onesies that the kids are wearing look uncomfortable. I'm pretty sure at this point Jake is entirely too old to be wearing one. He actually seems too old to be in that class of kindergarten. Yeah, <laughs> he does. So when I I I've only been to um, uh, uh, Disney World and Universal Studios once in my life, and it was when I was in the eighth grade, which was a weird time to go because you're like too old to enjoy the stuff as a kid, yeah, but not old enough to enjoy the stuff as an adult. So it was a weird time yeah and while we were there we went to nickelodeon studios which i wanted to do forever and ever and one of the things you get to do is you know they do like a game show and you can sit in the audience and which i desperately wanted to do but once i got there i looked around and it was like oh 
I'm surrounded by like ten year old kids, and then there's me, like six foot me, sitting in the back of this stupid fucking thing, just yep. like mort- mortified for my own position as I'm thinking about it. And that's how I feel like he is. He's like he's just a little bit too old to be hanging around with those kids. That's how uh, I played in some. There was some like when I was younger. There was some basketball league that I was involved in, and I, I got like signed up. My parents signed me up, and I was like basically as old as you could be. But it, the age range of the league was such that like kids are really different in age yeah. in, in size that they were. So I was just I was much like I'm not I'm not big by any stretch, and I didn't uh, I didn't have like growth spurt until later in life, like high school. But I was just bigger than all the other kids, and it's like this this awkward thing of feeling. You know, I be- I belong there, but it was awkward in the sense that like I'm I'm just a little bit too big for this league. Like this is not yeah. appropriate. I shouldn't be playing it, center on a basketball league. And at that point in your life, it doesn't feel cool. No, right. To be like you know, because you just want to be like one of the kids. Yeah. So if you're if you're a, a monster like apparently you were. Yeah. Um, and I was. Uh, it feels a little weird when you're put in those situations. Right. You, you stand out to a, a degree that not you don't to go do. on a complete tangent, but to finish that my. Uh, thought about the the Universal Studios. The thing that it was when I was down there was before they revamped the place, and so all the they still had all the shitty rides like the King Kong ride, and we waited in line at the ET ride for like an hour and a half, which I want I wanted to burn that thing to the ground by the time it was done because that's the worst <laughs> ride I've ever been in my life. Yeah, I don't I don't care what he says to you at the end of it, but so we're you know they had some cool stuff, but the rides in general are pretty shitty. And then we're walking, my dad and I are walking, and then there's this big thing of like what's coming soon. And it was like it was almost like a carnival barker came out and was like, "Hey kid, do you like Spider Man?" I was like, "Yeah, I, I love Spider Man." Do you like the X Men and the Incredible Hulk? Well, yeah, I do. Would you like to go on rides that feature all of your favorite comic book characters? Well, yeah, I definitely would. Well, you can next year. We're not here. <laughs> like we, we walked into this presentation thing and it showed this amazing Spider Man ride and the Incredible Hulk roller coaster and all this awesome stuff. And I yep. was just like, "Oh, cool. I guess I'll go." Sit on the King Kong ride for the fifth time because there's no reliance. <laughs> Come back next year. They sell you a time sa- uh, timeshare. That's what the parents are there for. Well, and hey, so- they've got a Simpsons thing down there, so I've been meaning to get back there and tear it up. So. Yeah, yeah, I've I've been since I was a little little kid. I don't think. Uh, continuing Stephen Cobb's thing, the slow motion scene with Cisco yelling and trying to stop the assassination was fairly effective in heightening the drama of the scene, mostly due to the director's producers not ever really doing it. I would say it was eighty percent cool, twenty percent too much. I'd probably go fifty fifty. Um, it wasn't an abomination of a scene, but I do feel that the uh, the slow motion was a little bit too too much or maybe inappropriate or something. <laughs> Kyle Barrett, the last comment, says, In the hands of the prophets, I remember not being too impressed with this episode as the season finale the first time I saw it, but looking back, it does introduce characters and plots vital to the future of the show in an engaging way. For the most part, the school debate is handled well. I like that just when everybody is arguing against the religious teachings. Cisco has a great scene with Jake on the importance of respecting the Bajoran culture. I think Burrell is miscast for what his role will develop into, but here the performance is solid. Win's a great antagonist, but I think at this early stage of the show, I would have preferred it to only be implied that she was involved in the assassination plot, with her intentions being a little more ambiguous than playing up the villainy. Here's a question for you. When presenting stuff like this, where it's philosophical arguments, do you think that there needs to be a position taken, or do you think you can... Expo- you can lay out both positions and sort of let the characters do what they're going to do without actually making a stance on it as a writer. I think that you can do either one. I think you can do either one. It depends on what you're trying to say. And I, I like I think that you could you could have two characters of philosophical uh, decisions 
and you as a writer are not sure of which the better one is. And I think in that case, you have to write both of the characters very carefully. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are ones where you're trying to make a point of something, which is what I feel that this episode is. And I also feel that when you do that, you have to be very, you have to have a solid understanding of what you're actually talking about. On yeah. some level, like you, you can't do this sort of. I, what, in my opinion, this is a little bit of wishy-washy philosophical stuff in this episode, and mm-hmm. I, it depends because I, I feel that maybe it's a problem with Star Trek that I have is that I disagree with the Roddenberry ethos in a lot of sense. Not just on like it's obviously it's terrible on a storytelling level, but I also believe that there are better ways of doing things and the federation is being disingenuous when it claims that everything is everything is valid like everything everything people do and believe you can't really judge them you can't say this is a bad thing that you're doing right. because i do feel that there are bad ways of acting and they're not and if you disagreed with that would you want to live in a world where people could just murder and rape each other right it's, it's like mean, obviously if that, not. Were, if that were the true ethos then starfleet wouldn't exist Right. Or at least it wouldn't do the stuff that it does. Because, I mean, <laughs> as much as they claim to not be a military organization, they very much are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I think I think you're right. I think you can you can do both of them. Um, I don't I don't I think a lot of times I see criticisms of things where it says, oh, the they present opinions, but they don't. They're too. uh they don't, they don't have stance. the cop. Yeah, they don't. They're too cowardly to make a stand on it, and then that comes off as being, uh, I guess, cowardly again. Is like, I'm trying to think of another word, but that's kind of the way that, that it's represented. Yeah, and I don't necessarily believe that. I think you can. I don't think we could get into a larger conversation about this in general, but I don't think that what your characters do has to be any sort of reflection of the 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 personal beliefs of the writer. No, and would that in mind i don't think you're obligated to make a stand on anything you know unless you unless you actively want to i think there's there's nothing wrong with presenting actions on both sides of an equation and then letting people kind of parse it out for themselves like i don't i don't think you you're uh morally obligated as a writer to to tell people that this is bad or something you know what i mean right. tell people that this something is wrong or something is right well i, I feel that I, maybe I disagree only in the sense that I don't feel that every script should come out and and tell me what the good thing to do is. Yeah. You know, there's a maturity to writing where you do the bad thing, but the bad thing exposes why it's a bad thing, kind of. Like right, the, right. The, and that's a little bit like I don't need the self-aggrandized sort of moralizing that goes on in some of the Star Trek episodes where the darker take is to just show how the wrong thing happens and it feel like breaking bad is an example mm-hmm. of that you know mm-hmm. like the the people who like breaking bad and sort of have problems with you know the skylar character and stuff are the people who don't really understand what the show is saying like you're not you're mm-hmm. not understanding what the walter white character is about at that point and i, I wouldn't want everything t- dumbed down to like an after school special level of stuff but right, i, I right. think that i think that some people <laughs> don't do enough thinking about what the show is actually trying to say. Not that all shows are built to do this, but some shows are built to sort of understand what the characters are trying to say and you to interpret it in a way that makes sense. Because I feel that if you're a good person, it's kind of hard to write a story that 
doesn't have a larger point about what's good, even if you examine the bad side of things. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't want it to sound like I'm I'm making an excuse. Clay's for, rape and torture miniseries. Yeah, when I go out and write about like, well, what if Hitler wasn't so bad? Right. I'm not. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But it's just, I think, uh, you know, I think most of the time, you know, these things are written by people who do have a moral conscious or moral compass. So that stuff works it out just naturally. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I don't I don't think uh, I don't think you have to necessarily exclaim your own point of view when it comes to this well, stuff. You which know, is... here's my sort of sum up point. I think that like there's a lot of political turmoil in the U.S. at this point, and you know you're going up against this thing that's sort of referred to as the alt right, and it's a lot of people who have uh, you know read the bell curve or at least claim to have read the bell curve, and they have sort of opinions about the the difference in intelligence between groups and white nationalism type stuff. Mm -hmm. The problem, and I think it ties into what this episode is, is that the problem with the, the, in in my opinion, the problem that the left has in combating this is that we've been raised to not understand why we think the things that people do think. Mm -hmm. So when you come up against racism, people can only knee jerk and say racism is bad. And like clearly, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, you know, clearly racism is bad, but we haven't we've lost the ability to explain (laughs) why. Thank you. Thank you for reinforcing that. (laughs) We've lost or people on the left. What if Hitler wasn't such a bad guy? People who are who are on the left to try to combat against this aren't able to explain why it's bad. And it all comes down to like the the ethical position that you take. And this episode, in my opinion, is that idea. It's saying this is wrong, but I don't really understand why I think that. And I think it in actually a contradictory way. Mm. So the 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 way that in, it goes against this alt-right thing, because the alt-right is built around this sort of, oh, we read these books that have, like they're, <laughs> the philosophy is fucked up that they're talking about. And there are ways to combat that philosophy. But you yeah. have to understand the point of what you believe. You can't just knee-jerk and say, this is bad, and I'm right, even though I can't explain why I think this thing. You can't just punch him in the face. I... No, I'm I'm, I'm actually oh. a non non the non puncher. No, I didn't I didn't I didn't realize that was an option. <laughs> but that's my uh, that's my sort of take on this episode. It's like I think we just we just lost a lot of followers. It, it, it feels good to it feels good to say these things, but you need to understand why it feels good to say those things and why these things matter. And you can't just kind of. You can't just say it and expect people right. to go along with it. That's my right, point. Right. Exa- yeah. Definitely. Um, but I think that's it. We. Well, what if Hitler wasn't such I a mean, bad but, guy? Yeah, it's all what... I'm trying to say. It's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> but what if? Um, <laughs> I think that's pretty much it. But guys, thank you very much for listening to uh, this season of DS9. We'll be moving to Deep Space Nine season two after this. Uh, you can go to all the social media, blah blah blah, Facebook, kids screaming in the background, Facebook, Twitter, blah blah blah, all that stuff. Um, you go to Patreon, you can support the show, even though Patreon's making some weird changes. So hopefully people are still going to stick around. And uh, if you want to support the show, give a couple dollars a month and it helps uh, keep things coming out in a timely manner. You can go there. Uh, the $10 patrons over there are, I always get a shout out. Stephen Cobb, Holly McLaughlin, Jay Stanley, Mike Burnett, Matthew Ross, Magpie Nest Productions, Ben Douglas, Tax Albert, Kyle Barrett, Joint Mingo, Vincent Adultman, and Tarek Latif. Guys, thank you very much for supporting the show. Anything else, Clay? Is that it? Are we done? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Check out Real Ripe and Real Rotten, the new film podcast that's about it. Uh, we're moving into Ridley Scott this month, so people can expect Alien and a good year. 
we'll take it from and there. And if uh, not to not to plug somebody else's stuff, but I don't a uh, friend of the show, Sean Murphy. I don't know if you guys have read his Batman book yet, but it's it's pretty rad. So I recommend picking it up. Yeah, it's uh, White Knight because he is a uh, social justice warrior online, and he enjoys uh, doing things like that. The things I was just raging against, that's what uh, Sean Murphy is all about. But yeah, check out Sean's comic book. It's very good. Um, you can buy it wherever comics are sold, and you can get them online, too. Uh, let's see. I think we're done. All right, Clay, thanks very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Guys, we'll see you next time.